You are listening to Fermat, the Fermented Food Podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 99. We're almost to 100. And I'm your host, Brandon, here with my co-host, Tara. Hello. Today, we have uh, two special guests to talk about um, umabashi plums. Um, we have uh, Willow and Mara in today. Welcome both. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for Hi. having us. So you are producers of these plums. And uh, you have a company called, I should have asked you beforehand, called Ozuke? Yes. Well done. That was correct? Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Could you just maybe start for the listener that isn't familiar with uh, these fermented plums? What are ume plums and a little bit about the, the fermentation process? Umeboshi plums um, are a traditional snack in Japan. However, there is a version of a salted preserved plum in many different southeastern Asian um, countries. There's a version in the Philippines, there's a version in South China, there's a Taiwanese version. Um, so it's a pretty common, it's thought of as a candy or a snack, which is kind of weird for the American or Western palate to think of a candy that is quintessentially salty candy in a used in a non-sweet terminology kind of thing yes yes so um i grew up in hong kong um and we would have these salted plums as a snack sort of in between meals um they are thought of as like a travel food um they're very good for nausea or flus or colds um so people use them medicinally as well um, and I think in, in Japan, they were used um, as a travel food or known as a, a samurai snack, so, so for endurance and, and long-distance travel. And they're, they're also used to break up blandness of other foods. So if all you have in your travel pack is um, some cold rice, well, the, the plum has a strong flavor and um, adds, creates a meal out of something that might be bland. Well, since you mentioned flavor here, um, could you go in, uh, you know, like a, a little bit more? I mean, so we have a, a salty, like, does it still maintain much of its, um, the sweet fruit of a fresh plum? Or are we talking just, uh, uh, is it a lot more mellowed out and just mainly highlighting the salty? So the different areas of Southeast Asia have a slightly different approach to the snack. For example, in Taiwan, I came across a an ume plum that was sort of crisp and salty. Uh, it still had sort of texture of a of a plum, but sort of crisped, um, kind of like you would think a, a dill pickle is crisp in that way. Um, in South China and the Philippines, they completely dehydrate them um, so that they're really super salty and desiccated so you sort of like gnaw on it kind of like beef jerky it's completely dried and you gnaw on it and feel your lips and tongue get completely salted out um, but the one that the ume that most people are familiar with out here um, be it that they may have been subjected to um, what's the diet i'm thinking of willow the um macrobiotic Yes, yes. A lot of people in the, the early 80s or late 70s, their parents ate macrobiotics. So they would have been introduced to the Japanese plum. And the Japanese plum um, is dehydrated and then rehydrated with brine. So it's soft and very salty, um, but has the aroma of a plum. 
So it's this quizzical thing. You bite into what looks like a plum and smells like a plum and has a soft flesh like a plum, but it's a very, very salty plum. So the brine that it's rehydrated with, is it is it like a fresh brine or and what is the so, salinity ratio? Um, oftentimes the Japanese umeboshi will have a salinity of upwards of 5% of salt. Um, so it's very, mm. very salty. So the, the process, um, if you want to delve into that, the process of making a Japanese umeboshi plum, which is slightly different from our process of how we make our umeboshi, but a traditional umeboshi plum, the plums are taken fresh and the plums that they use are kind of like a cross, an ume plum is like a cross between an apricot and a plum. Um, it's smaller than what one would consider a plum here in the U.S. A plum in the U.S. is what, a good two inches plus across. The ume plum in Japan is about one inches or one and a half inches across. Um, then it is salted um, and pressed in a lot of salt um, that draws the liquid out. And then after that first fermentation process, they then sun dry the plums, removing the plum liquid. The plum liquid, which is a salty plum juice, is then mixed with shiso leaf, which is a um, which is a reddish leaf that adds that sort of pinkish color. So the plums themselves are not pink. The color is added mm -hmm. with this herb later, a shiso leaf. Oh. Um, and then after the plums have been sun-dried, they're put back in the brine with the shiso leaf. And then um, that's pretty much your final product. So then how do your plums uh, differ from this process? Um, I don't do the second fermentation. So I do the first round of fermentation of um, salt-pressed plums, um, brining in their own juice. And then when they're done with fermentation, I dehydrate them. Um, and then I sell them as is after dehydrating. Um, I leave some liquid, so it's not completely desiccated. It's not shelf. My product is not shelf stable. Um, and I use a lot less salt than your traditional ume plum. And is this, um, kind of a balance of trying to find um, something that is approachable to the American palate, or is this just kind of your personal preference? This it's just part of my process. Um, I don't do the secondary ferment because I like the texture of what I came up with. The, the after the drying process, the, the plums still have some some moistness. They still have some toothiness. Um, they still have some bite to them. Um, whereas uh, the plums that are dried and then put back in the brine, they tend to have more of a fall apart quality. Which I'm I'm going for the I'm going for something that's closer to a plum. Would you also say that yours is is more in that vein of the candy of that snack food, or can it still be used um, in um, combining with other foods? 
Um, it's very versatile. So um, I, I went for much less salt because I'm not a big salt fan. And oh, I forgot to mention the whole point of the dehydration process is to remove alcohol that has been created by the fermentation process as well. Because of course, you know, we've, we've all fermented vegetables and they have this natural sort of lacto fermentation that happens. But when you have as much sugar in a product like a fresh plum, then, um, and, and you also have the plum skin, which has wild yeasts on it and whatnot. It's without fail, you're going to make some alcohol. Um, so that dehydration process removes the alcohol from the plum. Um, and then I take what's left the brine and I make vinegar with it, which is also traditionally done in Japan. Um, but I sell them separately. I'll sell the vinegar um, separately from the plum. I'm I'm really curious. Uh, I I just I noticed you both make fermented vegetables as well. However, the plums umeboshi that's you know a very distinct thing that you have your business. But did you grow up eating umeboshi, and was that what inspired your love for fermentation, or? Were you uh, interested in fermentation as a whole and then discovered umeboshi later? What was kind of your experience getting into the fermenting world? There's two, answer that, two, two answers to that question. I'll answer the first half and Willow can answer the second. Um, I grew up eating umeboshi of all different kinds because I grew up in Southeast Asia. Um, and my training before we started this business was as a chef. And um, most of my chef experience was as a chef of Japanese cuisine. So I, was, I had a lot of exposure to ume before I ever dreamt that I could make them myself. Um, and the, the first time we attempted this it was actually at, at Willow's parents' house um, after a hike that she and her children had taken and a particularly bountiful um, harvest of wild plums. But as for why we started the business, maybe Willow, I'll let you take that um, answer and run that question and run with yeah, it. Sure. Well, I didn't um, grow up eating a lot of fermented foods, although um, I think I had a, a German grandmother and great grandmother. So I had had some sort of traditional European sauerkrauts and other things, but a lot of my love of it really came from Mara and I are old friends and I knew her for many years before we started a business. And as she mentioned, she was a chef at Japanese restaurants. And so I sort of was introduced to a lot of these foods through her and through um, Asian cuisine. And um, ume was was not something that I grew up eating, but it was definitely something that we were drawn to because we felt like, well, we have these fruits growing and and, and what would it be like to make these things in sort of our region and and how would we change it and what would it be and so I wanted to loop back earlier to something you had asked about the American palate and the ume that we make and Mara has a very sophisticated and worldly palate and um, has you know grown up with these foods but I think the ume that we made is also something that is appealing to a broader audience because it's not quite as salty it has a little bit of fruit. It has a roundness of flavor that isn't quite as intense as the traditional ume, but it still kind of challenges the palate in that way. And um, so that's, I think a lot of what we do comes from 
trying to hearken to the traditions and learn from everyone who's made all these amazing foods for thousands of years before us and also trying to kind of meet people where they are and um, meet chefs and, and foodies and eaters and nutritionists and people in this current moment and trying to find ways to kind of blend those two things together. And the ume has been a really fun ride that way because it's a very, very old food, but in the U.S. kind of a new concept as well. And what has the response been like? It's been incredible. I mean, we um, last year we won a Good Food Award for the Umeboshi, so that was kind of a whole ride. We went to San Francisco and met Alice Waters and, you know, had like a really good run and sort of in the Northern California food scene. And um, we got great reviews in Bon Appetit and Food and Wine. And so Mara just bought another, I don't know, how many thousand pounds? 6,000 pounds? Plums. So how many? The, that, the story of how we came to ferment as many plums as we did last year is kind of a funny story. Um, last year, we made 4,000 pounds of plums. And it was from this just strange little backroom deal that I did with this kid that I met through um, the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union. Um, I had done a fellowship program with them and um, met this kid who, a great, great kid and very involved in, in food and food politics and was a first time farmer. His family had bought um, a fruit farm in Paonia, Colorado, and it was a farm that had fallen out of use. It was an organic farm that had fallen out of use. And his family just, this was their first year going in trying to turn it around and do something with it. Um, and so this kid was like, you know, I don't have the connections. I, I can't, I can't market organic fruit because we were in an organic transition period of time. Um, I don't know if you are aware, but when you have land that has not been farmed organically continuously, you have to have the paperwork showing that you you're farming it the correct way for two years of transition before you can put the organic symbol back on that produce. So I said, okay, well, why don't we buy all of your fruit um, until you're organic and that will help you with your transition. And um, I went back home after my fellowship um, trip to Washington DC and I said, Hey Willow, we're buying a bunch of fruit. And um, your response, your response, Willa, was? Well, I was mostly horrified. I was like, oh, my God, we don't do fruit. The fruit's not in our repertoire. You bought how much? You bought thousands of pounds of fruit, four, plums four and cherries. pounds of plums, yep. So, yep. I mean, I definitely got schooled because I was so not for the idea. And um, it's been a screaming success. But it was it was a lot of fruit to buy at once. So just for clarification, last year was your first year making the plums, correct? Correct. Uh, we've made them. We made them before. I've been practicing. I've been testing. I've been playing. That's true. With with fermenting last fruits. Last year was for the first year we years. made them commercially and sold them. Mm -hmm. And how yeah. long had you been in business prior to that with the Ozuki? Um, so three, in our fourth year. Years. So last year was our third year. Yep. yep. All right. So that was, that was a, that was a big leap with, uh, with all of those plums. Did you even know if, um, 
the plums that you are getting would necessarily create the flavor profile you are after? I mean, as you were talking about, different plums um, are going to ferment differently. Any idea? Mara, Mara has this like uncanny ability to sort of know things before she even knows them entirely herself. And she bought these elephant heart plums, which are a big, fat, round, red plum. They're very beautiful and very delicious to eat. Um, but we didn't know if they would if they would ferment well. And in the end, they have just done amazingly. They're meaty, they're fruity, they hold up really well. They, you know, they, there's a lot of fruit left on the stone after you dehydrate them. Um, the cherries that we did didn't hold up quite as well because there's just not as much fruit um, per stone ratio. So when you dehydrate them, they get, you know, kind of withered on the stone, but the elephant hearts just did amazing. But it, I mean, it was definitely an experiment. So you did it with, uh, with cherries too. So it, how you did it with, yeah, I, I, in my, ex, in my experience, we did, we did actually, um, become a finalist with the cherries for the good food award, but it wasn't my best batch. Um, and you know, 2000 pounds of not your best batch is probably, you know, not considered a, a resounding success. Um, <laughs> and also, I, you know, I had, I had done the cherries before and had a lot of success with them. I think that the cherries that we did were a little past ripe. You know, they, they, they were too ripe. They were too perfect. They were like eating cherries instead of um, young cherries. So I, I choose fruit that is underripe. Um, to, to work with because it just has a little bit more texture and it'll hold up to the, the fermentation process a bit better. So the cherries, the cherries from last year were not my best cherries that I've ever done. I will do them again, but I will never do 2000 pounds again because, um, I learned quite literally what the term, how the term cherry picked came into being. Um, it took us two days of a team of six people to sort, pick, wash, process all of those cherries. It was really intense. Oh. Wow. And so with uh, the um, – both plum and cherry have the, have the pit, uh, have the stone. Um, can mm -hmm. this same process of fermenting and dehydrating be done with any other fruits? Or is there something about um, the, the the stone that accentuates it? Of course you can do it with other fruits. Um, I think the most commonly known um, fruit ferment of this style is, um, you know, the, the Mediterranean lemons um, or the um, oh, sure. uh, Turkish lemons. It's mm -hmm. basically lemons, some fresh herbs and salt, and they press them together. And that's a really great ferment and really versatile as well. Um, in, uh, in Korea, oh, actually, no, I'm thinking about honey, but, um, it, I tried a few other different kinds of fruit in this style as well. Um, I tried a, I tried peaches and peaches, um, are very Colorado peaches are very famous. They're really beautiful. And the peaches were definitely interesting. In fact, the peach brine was really compelling. It had like a beautiful color to it, a pinkish, a pinkish hue, um, a pinkish orangish hue. Um, but the peach itself, the something about the furry skin was just, um, by the time we finished the ferment, it was not so great. It wasn't as, it wasn't as awesome as the plum ferment. 
but it sounds like it was still edible. Like I'm just thinking if people oh, are yeah. curious. It was great. It was great. You know, the, 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 the thing about this kind of a fruit ferment is it is really so simple to do. You take your fruit, you throw some salt on top, you push it and weigh it down until the juices start to come out, and then you leave it until it's done fermenting. And, you know, even just that is a really wonderful ferment. And then you can take, you can go the extra, do the extra steps of the sun drying. Uh, you can do the the third step of, of putting herbs back in and um, creating that brine, putting the brine back in. Um, yeah, but just salt the fruit, press it, and and wait and see. Something really interesting will definitely happen. Excellent. And where are you distributing to? Are you just mainly in Colorado at this point? We're not. We're um, all in the Rocky Mountain region, so it's our state and a four-state surround. And then we sell in Northern California, Southern California, Hawaii, um, a smattering in the Midwest, and then uh, New York City, the Hamptons, up to Albany, and a little bit, um, little bit down in the East Coast as well. So coast to coast. Excellent. Um, so people are likely to wow. be able to find this somewhere. Excellent. Yes, although the ume is not all those places because the uh, ume was a very sort of special run um, that we we did, and then the Good Food Awards kind of wiped us out as far as our ability. You know, we we've sold it all, so we just, as I mentioned, we just bought I don't know six thousand pounds of plums. They're all in fermenters right now, and they'll probably be ready. Mara, talk to me next month, two months, within <clears throat> weeks. Within weeks, okay. So yeah. um, they've been the, be... they've been fermenting for about um, six weeks at this point. So they'll be back on the market and available um, certainly regionally in Rocky Mountain region, Whole Foods and local grocers, and then um, we also sell to on mail order through Zingerman's and other. Um, kind of distributors that way and perhaps we'll be selling and we're also in Northern California um, with the Ume and maybe um, New York within the next couple of weeks. That sounds great. Um, yeah. where, where should people um, go to, uh, to find out more about you online, uh, be it social media or your website or anywhere else? You know, our website is the best place to find us and we have social media links there for all our other um, tendrils and that's www.ozuke.com. Well, thank you uh, to both of you so much for being on the show and, and talking with us today. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. All right. And before we leave today, we do have a few announcements. There are still events going on. It's totally fermentation uh, festival event season. So what's what's going on in your side of the world? Yeah, in my neck of the woods, there's the Portland Fermentation Festival coming up on October 27th at the EcoTrust building. It's uh, a Tuesday from 6 to 9 p.m. There will be a panel, which, uh, which I'll be on, and then a lot of tastings and fun beverages and all other sorts of lovely to enjoy. Yeah, and what's happening over in other parts of the country? Who else is um who else is festing it up? Well, right near me is the Reedsburg Fermentation Fest in Reedsburg, Wisconsin, and that is um starting as of this release of this uh, episode, it starts today. It's October 2nd to through the 11th, and again, that's there are fermentation 
workshops. There are so many workshops on the um, two weekends. Um, and then throughout the week, people can still go and look at the art installations throughout um, the farmland up in Reedsburg area. And then also in Boston, we have the Boston Fermentation Festival, October 4th. Um, so this Sunday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. So definitely go check that out as well if you're in the area. Um, and we also have, um, uh, we're going to have Michelle jump on real quick to talk about another fermentation festival that's coming up a little bit later this month. The Berkshire Fermentation Festival is a day-long celebration of the diversity of all things fermented. Um, it will be held at the Great Barrington Fairgrounds, which is located in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. It will be from 10 to 4 p.m., and it's really shaping up to be a jam-packed day with um, awesome vendors, presentations, book signings, uh, live music, a culture swap, and a cabbage holding contest. There's a lot, lot going on for everyone. It's free. Wait, what's a what's a cabbage holding contest? <laughs> Thought you might ask. <laughs> holding your arm out and <laughs> seeing <laughs> how long you can hold a cabbage. <laughs> So we'll, we'll see. It's challenging. Have you tried? It's like really hard. This sounds really fun. And what's the date again for the festival? Um, October 17th. And so you'll find um, those link. You'll find those links to the um, in the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash 99. Um, and we'll put a couple ume plum recipes in there as, as well. So definitely check out the show notes this week. And until next time. Firm up. Firm up. <laughs>